only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hey, this is Bev Hart, and you're listening to Appetite for Distortion with Brando. Woohoo! is Appetite for Distortion. Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode number 338. My name is Brando. A nice, solid intro right there. Usually, how I like to start my my podcasts and my interviews uh, didn't happen with Beth Hart, and it wouldn't change a thing, and that's why I didn't change a thing. I'm only giving you this professional intro, semi-professional intro, so you know what's going on, that I did not make a mistake in editing. No, I wanted to show a big theme of our conversation today in this episode, and that's being vulnerable. Her with music, me with podcasting, us as people, and yeah, we talk about her collaboration with Slash, but this is uh, unedited and the way it's meant to be. Beth Hart, an appetite for distortion. Oh, hey, Beth. How are you? This is Brandon calling. Uh, I'm going from New York, Queens, New York. I was actually... Oh, oh, no worries. I always think it's my fault, so no worries at all. Hold on one second. I'm just patching you through to, uh, to my bullet board here. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you perfect. Awesome, awesome. Well, so what you were asking me, um, I'm from Queens. Well, I, I live in New York. I'm not from Queens, but um, I don't want to bore you with my life story. I'm here about for you. Um, if Well, first of all, welcome. You know what? Hold on. I wanted to have a whole spiel here. I didn't realize you were going to pick up so soon. Hold on. And I now, actually really love to hear about you guys when I talk to you. It, it makes me feel comforted. And, and it, yeah, so I, I, I love hearing about you guys, like where you're from and you know what I mean? And. So were you born in Queens, or did you live there at some point as a kid? Or Actually, you know what? This is a nice, perfect segue into everything, because it it's kind of goes with my interview style, why I do okay. talk about myself, and then I get self-conscious about, am I talking about myself too much? Because I think it's going to relax the interviewer, and Great. You're, you're acknowledging that, so I, I am right. So yeah, just to briefly tell you, I'm from, from New York. My family's from Brooklyn. Uh, I like to say I'm from Brooklyn, even though I moved when I was one and a half. I don't know. It sounds better yeah. than being from Long Island. Uh, I don't know. I feel, yeah. I feel okay. a little, little tougher, a little tougher. Um, and then I just went to school out in Long Island. Uh, got my radio start in Cape Cod at a rock station up there. Uh, it's been doing, wow. been doing it for near, near 20 years. I want to count college because college, uh, my college had a great radio program there and that's where I got started. And now... I'm living here, and uh, I never thought I would be here living with uh, my soon-to-be wife. Going to get married in June. Uh, I got, oh, dude. 
it's I, I never thought it would happen. And uh, I got two cats right now. There were three at one point, but we got two here, and we're living in Queens together. She's from Chicago, but she moved out uh, several years ago for, for dance. She teaches dance to little kids. That's so awesome. You know, one of the things you said that I love so much, so I can tell that you're an honest person, is when you said, I was there for a year and a half, but I like to consider myself from there because it makes me feel cooler than growing up in Long Island. That's so fucking badass. Good for you, man. I love that. That's called vulnerability and putting it right out there. That's so cool. And yeah, one of the things that my trauma specialist does is he shares all his trauma and all his past addiction. So when you share with someone your intimacy, you allow them to see that if they need you, you're there for them because just then that person you were talking to was there for you by listening to your shit. And that is the true definition of intimacy. So that's the freaking bomb right there. I love that you do that. That's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. You know, this was a happy, a happy accident. I'll pretend that I did it on purpose because I always want to have a conversational interview anyway. And I was just going to say, you know, just hi, hi to you. How do we all sound? You know, once I connected to my, my home base, you know, before the pandemic, I did a lot of recordings at, um, I work for iHeart. The podcast is separate, but I was able to do it at the studios in uh, Tribeca, New York. But now I have a home studio since the pandemic. And I was going to just talk to you, you know, if you, when you have a hard out, when you got to go. And then I was going to do my own little spiel at the beginning. But that would have been a more, a less authentic way to get into a lot of the things that you're already talking about right away. And that's, you know, uh, self-confidence. Uh, that's talking about overcoming certain demons. And yep. what I found the most interesting, because it, it ties into what you're, what you're promoting, which is the best of all, what you're promoting, is I, I couldn't believe that, I guess it was almost like method acting, you, the way you described your reading up about this uh, Beth Hart tribute, a tribute to Led Zeppelin. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, her voice, it's going to sound, before I got to listen to it and, and everything else, and we'll get to that, of course, the sound and everything. But just to read about how you weren't there kind of mentally a little bit, you weren't as angry as you needed to be for a rock, uh, rock screaming and yelling. A lot of your anger had died down over the years, I believe you said, and you were scared to reconnect to that. So can you talk, oh, yeah. talk and about I knew, that? And also, I, also I've been on antipsychotics for 18 years because I've been misdiagnosed as a bipolar one ultradium cycler. When in truth, I'm a borderline personality disorder, which is not, that's in the DSM. So that's a personality disorder, and personality disorders do not need to be medicated. They mm. need constant trauma therapy. That's the way they find healing and remission. Whereas with real medical, like schizophrenia, bipolar 1, bipolar 2, and major depression, those are illnesses that have to be medicated or you literally are going to kill yourself or possibly somebody else. And the chances of that are extraordinarily high. So I was misdiagnosed. So when they put me on that shit, what that shit does is it basically numbs you the frick out and makes you very heavy and you have a lot of side effects. And eventually you get tired of dyskinesia where your life is over on antipsychotics. And antipsychotics were never meant to be on for a long uh, period of time. They were invented only to be on for five weeks until lithium builds up in your system. And it takes five weeks for lithium to build up in your system. So a lot of people don't want to take lithium because it makes you like literally a zombie. Whereas you can sure. take really light amounts of Seroquel, still sleep, and then if you're tripping, you can hit it. 
well, I did this, and I was with a psychiatrist that just brainwashed me into believing I had this. But he also diagnosed me as borderline. So I did a lot of research on it. I've had a trauma specialist since I was 28. And that guy said, in no way, shape, or form are you a, bi a bipolar one. You have to m meet certain criteria. And even though I've been in nine psych wards, every time I've been in, every time, it's, I've been on some kind of drug or alcohol. In other words, to be considered a bipolar one, you have to be up for five days once in one, one, one episode in a year on no drugs. And then you have to have at least a two-week depression period. Whereas with bipolar 2, you don't get that kind of mania. You get hypomania, and then you get much longer periods of, of depression. And then just major depression is where you can't get out of bed for at least six, eight, maybe, you know, three months. So those are the criteria, and I didn't meet any of them. So during pandemic, after so many years of being on Seroquel, I had to gently and very slowly wean off of that. And even then I had to go on beta blockers for my heart because my, my whole system had been so suppressed for so many years that my resting heart rate was 150. And on beta blockers, it was 130. So I thank God for pandemic for me in terms of getting off that shit. And then when I got off it, I also made the mistake of having my mother come live here for six months trying to protect her. That was a terrible idea. Well, and then any, any I had the news. For... Right. <laughs> and then I had the news, which was, you know, crazy with the death and then the denying of death and the conspiracies and then the marching for equality and people denying that there's such thing as inequality. And, and, and it was just, and I felt rage. And that's when I picked up the phone. And I said, you bring me every fucking thing there is on Zeppelin and I will love to learn it because all that anger and all my child trauma, all of it had been reignited. You know, so I was, I was literally chronic PTSDing again. Wow. And so it was the perfect time to learn that material. And that material was really healing for me. And, and the, here's the thing. The narrative of Zeppelin music is not angry lyrically. It's not. But musically, it's got, it, uh, it reminds me a lot, not of blues. It reminds me of my favorite music, which is classical music. And classical music is the ultimate highs and lows, you know, uh, intense tempo changes. One minute it's soft, the next minute it's so aggressive, um, so much darkness and light, all happening within one piece. And so I'm listening down to Zeppelin's music, and it's reminding me so much of classical music, put to rock. And then you've got Plant doing total, like, blues, American, early blues soul singing, aggressive. So that was perfect for me to get all that stuff out even though the narrative wasn't angry, but musically it had all that I needed to get all that out. Wow. So that was very healing and very humbling and very inspiring as a songwriter. <laughs> wow. Very inspiring. I, I you know, it's just yeah. it's incredible. This goes back to the first thing that you said about just sharing a story and making, going through your path just now made me feel comfortable to, to, to share more of mine. And, and I think it's unbelievable because it's like how... Because you're right with Led Zeppelin and listening to it, because I got to listen to the whole record. You know, I, I got my digital copy, and while it pays homage, you can sense the anger in your voice and just knowing where that comes from. And I identify with that because I'm sitting here right next to. I'm not going to take it for a few hours. I take it before dinner, but it's my uh, my Cymbalta. I have the Deloxetine, yeah. uh, 60 milligrams, and I was kind of like you. I believe uh, 
I forgot what interview I watched with you, but you would be off on medication, you would be on medication, and it was a real struggle. Yeah. And I was the same way. I'm like, I don't need this. I don't. I don't need yeah. this. And yeah. a lot of trying to get how do I get my anger out in a positive way, and it comes out yeah. in, in unique ways. And I think that's just really special that it came out with the Led Zeppelin record. So can you just tell us how that came about, how you were presented with this opportunity? Because it's just, I know you get a lot of Janis Joplin comparisons, or it just sounds like, yeah. even though it it sounds like you, it sounds fresh. And this is coming to somebody who works in radio that has heard Zeppelin a yeah. million times. It sounds fresh. Yeah. At the same time, it's this time capsule. What if Led Zeppelin collaborated with Janis Joplin? It's just so many things went on in my brain. Listening to oh, dude, record. it's so funny you say that because the very first time I ever heard uh, uh, um, um, uh, Robert Plant, because uh, my neighbor next door, who I love, Brandon, he was really into Zeppelin. And I hadn't yet been turned on to Janis Joplin. So I would hear a little bit of things, like I'd hear Black Dog, I'd hear Babe, I love that. And then someone turned me on to Janis when I was in my late teens. And I went, wait a minute, this reminds me a lot of Robert Plant. And then when I started listening a lot to Janice, that was, I kept thinking, were they friends? Like, and, and then I thought, wait a minute, it was that generation. So you know how, like, when you listen to hip-hop now, you'll hear a lot of that, it's that language. It's like, if you grew up in a Mexican family, even if you're a white person, when you talk, you're going to have an accent that's going to be a Spanish accent. Because that's what you grew up listening to, right? I see what you're saying, so that, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I can totally hear Janice and Plant. Like, he's, like, the male version, and she's, like, the female version. Yeah. And they remind me so much of each other. And, like, was Steve Marriott, and who I freaking that guy was ridiculous. He, to me, was on a whole nother level. And, like, he was listening to even more, like, black, freaking hardcore, aggressive, dirty freaking blues. Singing his ass off. And then you got like Chris Cornell who comes along, and like uh, um, from Allison Chains, Elaine uh, Staley, mm -hmm. so genius and amazing. And I was thinking, oh, Chris Cornell, he's the best. He's the very best. Until I came across the dude who freaking's the bass player from Deep Purple. What's his name? And he did a bunch of records with Joe Badamasa. Um, so unbelievable. Uh, Glenn Hughes. Oh, sure. And when I heard Glenn Hughes sing. I said, oh, my God, Chris Cornell must have grown up listening to some Glenn Hughes. Because ah. you can hear the, it's the riffing. It's the timing. It's the signature, the way they're, they're breathing, the way they're announcing things. And you can really hear that. And I love that. I love that, like, when I listen to Amy Winehouse, I can totally hear how much of Sarah Vaughn and Dinah Washington she listened to. You can clearly hear it. It's brilliant. I love how we all influence each other. It's a beautiful thing, man. It really is. It's it is. a spiritual thing. It is. Yeah. And you're, you're such a, even though you're, you've been in the game for what the kids call the game for quite some time, but you're, you're such yeah. a student of it as well. Like, you know your history. Has it always been like that? I know you, you started singing and playing at a young age, but did you always want to go back and learn the history? Well, you know, I was obsessed with every genre as a kid because everyone in my household was obsessed with many genres, each and every one of them. So they were always playing a lot of music. And then I was playing classical, you know, piano at four, and I started cello in the fourth grade. So classical was my thing. I started studying classical singing at 13 until my opera coach said, listen, 
You cannot take this music and improv. This is classical music. You have to sing it exactly the way the composer wrote it. It's not for you. It's not going to work. And that was really sad. But then I began at that age, putting lyric to the music I had been writing. And I started writing music at four. So my first recital was just music, and it was stuff that I'd written. But it was no singing. And then the singing only happened later when I was told, it's never going to happen for you as an opera singer. Hmm. And that's what I really wanted. But my father and my mother and my two sisters and my brother, I mean, everything from punk rock, heavy metal, uh, um, Beatles, Carole King, James Taylor, um, uh, uh, all the, everything jazz you can think of. And then my father, major classical buff. And just anything country, like old country, though, like Hank Williams, badass. Um, uh, Joni Mitchell stuff, and, and, and it was just it, it was steel pulse. I got my brother just flooded me with so much amazing reggae. I mean, I love Bob Marley, love Peter Tosh, but steel pulse, hands down favorite. And then my best friend Ron, who I met at high school performing arts, he threw Donnie Hathaway my way, Etta James my way. Uh, he threw uh, um, who else he throw my way that was so freaking brilliant. Uh, oh, Big Joe Turner I was listening to with my early boyfriend, Mike Garcia, who I actually live with in Brooklyn, New York, Bensonhurst, when I was 14. That okay. was a nightmare. Oh, but yeah, man. so I mean, and then people started giving me when I, because I was singing, you know, at 15, 16 out in the clubs, uh, down in the chilling circuit down in South Central. So people started giving me box sets of Robert Johnson. And so I just kept getting flooded all these different genres. And every genre I came across was remarkable, not just the singers and the musicians. It was the genre of music itself. And it just was mind-blowing. And to this day, it's mind-blowing. Hip-hop and the way that has, like when it first came out, I remember in the seventh grade, <laughs> so I hated everybody at school. And I dressed like a cholo. And I would deal shake. So I would smoke the buds, and then I would take the leaves and cook it in the microwave. And, and I was such a hustler. And I'd go to school and be like, this is the most badass shit. So I'd just sell them shake, right? And then I was really into rapping. So I hated the kids. I'd always break into the auditorium and just play the piano in there. But when, it, when I wanted to have a day where I wanted attention, I'd make them sit down and listen to me rap. So this was really early rap, way before the 90s gangster rap when it became pop. This was early, early shit, right? And then you had the freaking chronic come out, which was like the Bible and, and NWA and how amazing all that stuff was. But then now you have like Kendrick Lamar killing it. Kanye, we know he is the, one of the greatest narcissists of all time. Yes, we know this. But you can't doubt the fact that the guy's a freaking genius. He never repeats himself. He's phenomenal, a phenomenal artist. And it just keeps going. It just never ends how much talent and how much inventiveness there is. And the thing I love about art the most is it seems to always morph and change after some kind of catastrophe, after some type of horror, some type of suppression, some type of evil. And it's like necessity is the mother of invention. So if they don't come up with something beautiful, their souls die. And so you look at American music and the slaves and what they went through, and boom, Baptists. And if you listen to Baptist music, you'll hear rock and roll, hip-hop, jazz, blues. You hear it all in just that one genre. And then it just keeps going. And that's what I love. I love that about art. 
It's fucking awesome. It's church. It's healing. It doesn't matter if it's like all positive lyric or horribly negative lyric. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, a, it's a way of looking at the mirror of ourselves through any type of art form. And it's so much fun in challenging and humbling and it kicks the shit out of you. But then it turns around and hugs and kisses you and lets you know, hey, motherfucker, this is here to heal you, not to make you rich and famous. It's here to heal you. Be grateful. Wake up and go do it. Mm. That's it. Uh, it's that's it. It sounds so simple, but I think you're you're right in so many ways. And I know I only have you here for for so long, and you've collaborated with so many different artists. But I'm wondering. I'm picturing myself as a fly on the, on the wall because I could see you having this kind of conversation with somebody who is also uh, seems to have a great appreciation of not just the genre that he's known for, but different ones and collaborating with different people. And that's Slash. You know, obviously, oh. appetite for distortion. So I'm I'm just curious. What did you bond with Slash over when you first met him? Like, was it this philosophical? Was it just a were you fans of each other's music? Do you, do you remember when you first crossed paths with Slash? Yeah. So this is what I love the most about Slash, by far, hands down. He's a total bro. So he's <laughs> a true team player. So you know when you see basketball and football and how badass those guys are, and then they get interviewed after they win the game or lose the game, and they always give it up to their teammates and the coaches. That's what they do every single time. And that's what's so badass about Flash. He recognizes that no man is his own island. He is with his brothers, and he's a team player. He's just one of the coolest dudes in the world. I don't find him to have any ego whatsoever. None. Zero. And he's like... He's one of the most recognizable in terms of, like, you see Marilyn Monroe, you see Elvis Presley, you see, you see Slash, you know who they are. Yeah. Even if you live on a friggin' island somewhere and you've never seen a TV. I say that if you all see a photo of Slash, you go, oh, my God, that's Slash. You know what I mean? I, I, it's put, like, I put up a, uh, like a, a tweet of just, like, I just put up Slash's silhouette. And I said, arguably, just from his silhouette, his shadow, he's the most recognizable, alive musician on the planet. Totally, right? totally. Absolutely. And couldn't be more down to earth. And I love that. I love that. Because that's the point. That's how you get to get old doing this thing, man. Is you keep your fucking feet on the ground and, and keep that ego away, man. Edging God out. E-G-O. <laughs> keep that shit out. And freaking know how freaking lucky you are to A, breathe. And B, be able to hook up with other people. And basically stay in the seventh grade for the rest of your life and get paid for it. Uh -huh. That's it. Just get to have a good time. I and like don't take that. yourself so freaking serious. We're not doing freaking brain surgery, you know? It's just music. Yeah, I like that. Saying, staying in the seventh grade your, your entire life and just enjoying getting paid for it. Yeah, you're right. You know, because... Uh, <laughs> you in seventh it's grade, I guess terrible. I was doing, I was more into like sports broadcasting, but I would pretend to announce Yankee games, you know, in the seventh grade, you know, in my room. So yeah, totally. Yeah. That, that's absolutely, that's amazing. So I'm glad you guys crossed paths. Like, how did you cross paths? Was it uh, a mutual so he acquaintance? Saw me, yeah. so, so Jeff had called me after Jeff and I had done a writing session together and he saw a DVD I had done uh, a few years earlier um, in Holland. And he goes, I want you to be my singer for a U.S. run. I haven't done a U.S. run with a singer since Rod in back in the 70s. 
would you be into doing it? And I'm like, yeah, of course I would. So I went out and did that U.S. run with him, and Slash saw me at one of those shows. Then Slash called and said, listen, I'm making a record. I want to know if you want to do a co-writing with me on one song. Each song on this record is with a different artist. So we wrote a song together, but the song I wrote with him ended up not making it to that album. It ended up going on an album to help the release of the, the massive hurricane that had come through and hit in... Um, uh, um, Haiti? What's that uh, country? Uh, if I'm remembering the right, you got to forgive me. I never went to geography, man. I walked into geography class and I looked around. And I said, bye. Um, uh, it's one of our main, and so everybody raised a bunch of money and dedicated a lot of records to it. And so that's where the song ended up on. But we still remain friends to this day. Um, I'll sit in and play with him locally in town once in a while. And I just saw him at Mates rehearsal before I left. And he said, hey, man, get ready. You're going to have a ball on this tour. He goes, people are out of their minds in the shows. They're having so much fun. Mm -hmm. And he was right. I like it, the U.S. run that we just finished was the most fun I've ever had touring the U.S. It was just, and we get to go back and do more of touring in the U.S. in three weeks. Okay. So we're so excited. Oh, that's, that's, that's awesome. And the song I believe you're referring to is uh, Mother Maria, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and was that for the for Haitian relief? Was that for Haiti? Yes. Okay. Did, yes. Okay. It was for the Haitian relief. Yes. That's where that ended up. So yep. how, can you guys, um, again, I only have you here for a few more minutes. Like, How did that songwriting, if you can, a little more detail of, of how it came together, Mother Maria, because I want to give, I always like to get my listeners involved as much as I can. So this is from the uh, the Tyler86 on Instagram. He goes, obviously, you'll have to ask her about how Mother Maria came together, the writing process, hooking up with Slash, et cetera. We got to some of that. And he just wants to let you know it's an absolute br brilliant song, in his humble opinion. But in all of our opinions, wow. it's a brilliant song. So, yeah. So basically, Slash sent me um, some guitar recording changes. And then I took it to the piano. And that's when I kind of redid it, uh, put a melody and a lyric on it, turned it in, was really excited about it. And the first thing he said when I showed it to the studio was, what happened to the song? It doesn't sound like the same song. But I think it's because I didn't write it from a standpoint on the guitar. I went to the piano because I've got a way larger vocabulary on piano. So it'd be easier for me to write it on the piano, right? So, but it clearly, I'm still using a lot of his changes. And then when we recorded it, I loved it. But I don't think it was hard rock enough to fit in with the rest of the other artists that were on that record. And I think, and, and you know what I love about Slash so much? Instead of him having his manager call me and let me know it wasn't going to end up on it, which is what most people do in this business because they're freaking pussies, <laughs> and everybody always wants to be the good guy and make their manager the bad guy. Mm. I hate that. He personally called me himself, and he said, I'm really, really sorry, dude, it's not going to make it to my album, but we are going to do it for a relief album. And then it will also go to iTunes. And I'm like, right on, man. Thank you so much for calling and letting me know that. And I just love that. I love the respect of him doing that himself like that. Yeah, That's right so on. That's so cool. Yeah, right yeah. on. Absolutely. I mean, how many of us can identify with that? They get somebody else, you yep. know, a boss to do their their dirty work, their lackey or whatever. And for exactly. Slash, he doesn't need to do that. And uh, I'll just say, I mean, it's obviously the record's been out for several years. I don't care if it's hard rocking enough. Uh, you love the ballad, so I'm, I, we, it's out regardless wherever you, you find it, whether it was on that original album or by itself. So I'm just glad that you two got to collaborate, especially you both being blues-based. I mean, that's just 
I, yeah. hope, I hope more yeah. in the future. I mean, I don't know if that if that's. Yeah, right. I love that guy, and that guy also quit smoking. He inspired me, and took me a long time. I tried to quit a bunch of times. His mama died, you know, from being a smoker, and that was it. He he quit, and then finally, um, now I've got a little over a year. But when I tell you how easy it was to quit this time, I know it was God. Because the same thing with alcohol. I had been drinking off and on since I was 11, just like they talk about the drinking disease just gets worse and worse. And it got so bad to the point where I knew I was going to just die by aspirating. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole story with you of how it finally worked, but literally since my last time of drinking, which has now been seven plus years, January 3rd was my seven years, not once, not even during pandemic, nothing has made me crave alcohol, not once. And same thing with smoking, not once. I can be around people drinking, I can be sitting at a bar, I can be freaking around people smoking, and I have no desire. And that's God right there. That's just doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I didn't do it through AA. I actually did it through Mm. church. And I was in and out of AA since I was 13. But it just didn't work for me. And I know it works for others because i got several friends who've got a ton of years, and they're very dedicated to AA. But what worked for me was just, it was church. And, And particularly this pastor who helped me. She didn't get preachy and do all that kind of stuff and not religious-y like that. She's a Christian. But basically what she sat me down was this. She goes, look, this is your way out of hell. Gratitude. So everything that's ever happened to you, no matter how much trauma, no matter how much shit you've been through, look at it as a badge of honor. Look at it as God saying, I'm going to teach you and stretch the shit out of you and let you see that you will become more compassionate, more loving, and able to share what you've been through and help others because of what I've given you. So the easy parts of life, that's nice. That's nice. That's a little piece of cake. But the hard parts of life are the actual meal. That's where you're really being nourished. And when she helped me to look at it that way, that's when the drinking and the smoking, I just, I'm like, I'm done. And I still, I self-medicate, but I do things, natural things, like I do shrooming for trauma. That's been a major impact on me. And I never shroomed as a kid. I didn't like it, but I was taught how to do it by my trauma specialist. I do take a mood stabilizer, a very mild one called Lamictal. And then I do a slew of morning vitamins specifically for depression and then evening vitamins specifically for mania. And then along with yoga and boxing, I just hit the shit out of my bag today, gardening, swimming, and prayer. And those things, it doesn't make me perfect. I'm still an asshole. I still have my days of being very, very without any graciousness. But I'm not cutting myself. I'm not beating myself with a brush. I'm not attacking people. I'm not doing a lot of the things that I did for years and years, you know? So that really kind of got me going in the right direction, man. And I feel really grateful for that, you know? I'm grateful for you, for your family, uh, putting that out, because I'm sure many people identify with that. Yeah, the theme of this podcast is is Guns N' Roses, but I always say the underlying theme, because I talk about it, is mental health, because it relates to a lot to Slash and and others, and and since I'm the host, I can't help but talk about it. Your music is your outlet. Yes. This is my outlet. So, yeah, just for for me, six years without alcohol, you know, I I self, uh, now it's it's legal in New York, so I do smoke uh, the marijuana. I mean, Guns N' Roses makes, uh, you know, G&R bowls and bongs, so they're, they're promoting it as well. 
But you said something awesome. really special, and I want to wrap it up here because it's something I want. I think it encompasses the entire conversation. It okay. was, and I believe your your short documentary on your YouTube, and somewhat paraphrasing, shine a light on the dark, even if that makes you the biggest dick or the biggest loser. And I just think that's great, and that's what I tried to do. Even if it, if I come off as a dick, I don't want to. If it makes me come off as a loser, which I feel a lot of times, if it helps somebody yeah. else, if it, if it, in the end, if it's helping me shine a light on it, that's great. So the fact that you're still not just making music, uh, that you're not just touring, thankfully, uh, because of COVID and everything, we were all unsure for a while. Uh, yeah. But you're still talking about everything. It's so important. You've been talking about this well before. It seems like the world now is thankfully catching up to mental health, but it took a while. So I just wanted to yeah, get, get that it, all out it, there. It, yeah, and you know the next thing I really hope people start catching up to, too, is people that are murderers and rapists and child pedophiles, that is a seriously deep mental illness. And it's a combination of an inherited gene and serious abuse. Or it's psychopathy, where you're born with no uh, nervous system. Yeah. None. Right. And people have no compassion for that. And that's something I think very, very important. People have got to catch up to that, because if we don't start having compassion for everyone and everything, our hate, our war, our apathy, all of our shit is just going to continue as, as it's always been. And I'm not saying it's the answer to world peace. I'm not saying it's the answer to anything. What I am saying, though, there is something about not like fuck forgiveness. Forgiveness still entails judgment, but acceptance and having a little trust that there's no such thing as someone being born evil or they're evil. It's called illness. And yeah. so getting to the heart of that and working on that is so much better than either blowing someone away, torturing someone, or throwing them into prison with, the, with a bunch of other people to just enable each other to continue their illness. Yeah, we are work. such a complicated species, and we're obviously doing We got to do it the right ways because something's not right. We shouldn't be harming ourselves. You're right. It's not like it's the movies where somebody is you know, born evil like Dr. Evil or something like that. So I understand yeah. that in a larger deeper conversation and I appreciate it because that's how often I think and it's just it's hard to convey that to people without you know getting into that deep conversation but you allowed me the time to do that today uh if anything just take your anger out through a tribute to Led Zeppelin <laughs> that's how I tie everything around <laughs> and, and beating the shit out of the garden my garden right now is so scared of me I swear to god they're like Jesus we got this please give us a break <laughs> I know Oh, oh, my God. Beth, I mean, this was a pleasure. Obviously, we can keep going. I hope we get to do this again, just uh, continued, you know, just Me being too. you. And uh, you're, you know, next time you're around in New York, I would love to see you live. You know, when you're, my, my girlfriend, she was excited, my fiance, I should say. She was excited to, you know, that I was talking to you today because she's been a fan of yours as well. So uh, we'll both be there next time you're in uh, New York City. I'd love that. I'd love that. Your pleasure, man, really. I had such a good time talking to you. This is what it's about. You know what I'm saying? It's not about just promoting your fucking product. It's about having relationships. Because when I talk with you like this today, I get to, it's a spiritual experience. It is. It is. It's a one human sharing with another human and then them sharing back. 
And that's it. That's growth. That's learning. That's love. That's a relationship. And that's fucking the most important thing in the world, man. That's the most important thing in the world. Beth Hart gets it. Beth, why don't more people? Beth Hart gets it. She does. I don't know if I get it, man. I think I'm just trying to get it. I'm trying to get it. Are we all? Aren't we all? We're all trying to find our way. Well, Beth, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You're a sweetheart, man. And congratulations on your engagement. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You were awesome. Thank you so much. You have a great one. Wow. That was a fun, intense interview. Just like right away getting into it. And and again, that's why I left the beginning portion in of me dialing because that's just how we segued right into the conversation. And that's what this podcast is about. As you know, I don't enjoy the yes or no style of questions and it feeling like an interview. I want it to feel like a conversation. So we vibed right away. Uh, she, her personality was perfect for the style of interview that I do. And uh, she was just a lot of fun. And I, you know, with the podcast, the kind of a behind the scenes that I like to give at times, that's why I left in the beginning. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. So thank you, Beth Hart. Very, very different adjustment that I had to make as opposed to my Lee Ving interview a few episodes ago. Lee Ving from Fear. What an amazing man. Super sweet, super nice. But I want to talk about that in a little bit because of just the, the pivot I had to make in this interview compared to that. And I... All the kind words that you, many of you put out there with a leaving interview, I was worried about it, you know, actually, you know, how it would be perceived. So let's do that under a segment. Uh, we did last interview or last episode, we, we brought back uh, a fan obsession with Ava Lawless. We did uh, Appetite for Discovery with Christian of The Cruel Intentions. So I'll read some of your leaving comments along with some other comments and messages that you, you write. And we do this in what we call, or what I call, Mr. Mailstone. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. I got a lot of wonderful feedback about the leaving interview, and I was concerned because if you did listen, I would think I was, I was you could tell, I was thrown off just like you were. And it's no fault. Lee is a legend. He served our country. I, he, what a wonderful experience speaking with him was. Just amazingly nice on and off the air. But he's 71. I didn't expect for him to be that forgetful. And I went with it. And you know, there were a couple times we had to call his PR person, who is the person who set up the interview, and I, who I thought it was okay to do Zoom. I didn't realize you would be confused by it. <laughs> you know, having his ear up to the camera at times to listen. And I just went with all of it. And I just like with the Beth Hart interview, because now going with it and all just wanting to have happen is for the guest to be comfortable, enjoy themselves. And, you know, for me to laugh, for you to laugh and just to have a good time, regardless of just whatever um, situation happens that is just unexpected other than, yeah, we're here to talk about, you know, Guns N' Roses and promote something, but if something's a little askew, let's go with it. I've learned to do that because if you just deer in the headlights, it just gets awkward, you know, or if you don't address what happened, it's like you're insulting your audience. It's like, wait a minute, why are you not addressing this obvious thing that's happening? And so I just got a lot of great, inter- I, I didn't know how it was going to come off, Lee, and, and 
it would it be an enjoyable listen, even though it was an enjoyable experience. But the answer was yes, it was enjoyable. And I'll I'll read this. Uh, this is from uh, Twinnel Blood, right? I guess uh, I love your handles. Why can't you get look, look at me on on my GNR forum Gambit eighty three? Easy, but sometimes you got to get creative. So I apologize. So yeah, Twinnel Blood. Uh, he writes, or she writes, oh, it says male, okay. Uh, that actually started off pretty well. The bit with him recording, uh, a bit with him recounting bartender school and his first night bartending at Slugs during a Charles Mingus concert made me super happy. I love this kind of uh, antidotes, and your podcast always offers, always uh, offers a lot of this content. Thank you. The little part speaking about the harmonica was pretty cool as well. Thanks. Uh, then he seemed to be seemed to completely lose the thread and get sidetracked when the documentary became the topic. It took me super off guard as the viewer. I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for you as host. You handled it very good. I must say, good job. Thank you. It did take me. I was like, what? Like, I was told to ask about the documentary, and he didn't remember it. And uh, I don't know. At that point in time. You know, based upon the conversation I had with Robert when I made a bid out of it, called him on speaker, and I left it in just so you would know how I operate. I would have edited that out. I would have redone the interview if needed if he was having a bad day. But Lee had a great time, and I don't know. We we, we phoned a friend. We made a bit out of it. We made it different, and that's what I, I, I loved, you know. I, I loved about it. So, yeah, there was – I had to make a pivot, but I'm, I'm glad you – uh. You got it, and I really appreciate that uh, twinnel blood. And this is a, a comment that was left, a couple of comments that were left on the YouTube version of the the interview where you got to watch, uh, you got to watch, uh, what was he, this guy called him Grandpa Lee, I guess. Uh, so this is from Bertie Pierce on our YouTube page. Great interview, considering. Uh, Lee has always had his way, had a his way go at things, and is now... It's now kind of like dealing with a pushy, edgy grandfather figure, not to be rude. He's just no BS and has always been hilarious. Well, he certainly, in the interview, was not pushy or edgy. He was just sweet. Just like a sweetheart of a guy. And that, if anything, threw, threw me off. I'm like, this is the guy from Fear, you know? Uh, but no, he was amazing. And that made that situation easier. If he was getting frustrated... If he was getting angry, it would have been different. But no, he was just an amazing person. I think that's what made it come off well. What could have been a disaster if it would come off well. And Bertie actually continues, holy sheast, <laughs> he writes. It's his words, not mine. I can't fucking believe he got you to call Robert again. See, I tried to avoid it, too. I wanted it to not become a shit show, but <laughs> it became a show. That it became. Uh, that was so funny. I don't know. You started the uh, the cast by stating you are new to this style of interview. Um, I I don't recall. I mean, I'm not new to this. I'm used to that kind of awkward style. That's just how I am in person. You know, uh, maybe he was new to Zoom. Uh, well, man, I got to hand it to you. It's safe to say that this uh, meeting definitely was an obstacle free. He's put quote. He's putting his ear up to the Zoom, end quote. Hashtag classic. I mean, how, again, how do you not address that? If you're watching on YouTube, he's holding his ear up. <laughs> you know, it's it's not quite as bad, but it, it reminded me a little bit of when my grandpa, uh, Grandpa Marty. He he asked me what the internet was. I'm like, how do I begin to even answer that question? 
you know. Uh, but it, yeah, it was, you know, some obstacles, but he was just awesome to talk to. You know, I'm not asking about, you know, math, science questions. Just I want to hear Lee Ving talk. And he did. You know, was his memory great? No. But at the end of the day, who cares? I enjoyed myself. He enjoyed himself. It seems it, seems it, it was obvious, but based on your comments, you, the listener, enjoyed yourself. And at the end of the day, that's that's what I want. Uh, I'll go to another DM right now uh, as we continue Mr. Mailstone. Uh, this is, uh, she's from Canada, Toronto. Her name is uh, Kat, and she is just a great commenter. You know, I, I, I see. I, I know it's just only me. I use we a lot because I want you to feel part of this podcast, and I don't like saying I. It's unavoidable, but uh, when I post, I notice that she comments a lot. Just She goes above the like. She'll put usually like an emoji of a thumbs up too, or an emoji of, of metal horns. That's, that's an extra step, and I appreciate it. So taking, of course, the next extra step would be a DM of just saying nice things, which makes me feel good why I continue this. Uh, very much appreciate your posts. Keep rocking those YouTube shows. Oh, and those joke posts rock too. Thank you, Kat. And the joke posts, I, much like the Lee Vang interview or perhaps this interview with Beth, you just never know how it's going to be perceived. And I can't help with my sense of humor and trying to come up with Guns N' Roses content. They only give you so much. So perhaps you saw my brilliant tweet. Uh, I don't know. Has anybody else thought about this? If Axel's with a lady, you know, he's romancing her, trying to court her, gain her fair. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe he gets down to one knee and he just starts serenading her with Kiss from a Rose by Seal. And just gives her like a light peck on the on the hand. No. No one's ever thought about that before. <laughs> I don't know, his last name is Rose. Now I'm explaining it, so which makes it not funny. So, I don't know. Many of you found that funny. So, yeah, I put out stupid joke Guns N' Roses posts, and uh, I'm glad that most of you find them funny. And if you have a, you know, a dad joke grown, kind of like, oh, you know, that's that's fine, too. You know, I just love the reaction and uh, interacting with you, whether it's through a, an interview or through a stupid GNR-related, you know, wannabe humor joke. And here's uh, no slide to any comment I just read. But this perhaps was the, one of the best uh, Mr. Mailstones that I've ever got. So you may remember episode 29. So this is back in 2017. I uh, did an interview with Alan St. Elisa. He is a guitar player from the band Shire. You know, it's long since broken up. But if, if you don't remember or don't recall, uh, Shire was... Uh, Izzy was in that band before Guns N' Roses. Izzy actually played bass in that band for maybe five or six shows. Um, Alan and him hit it off. They were friends. Alan was friendly with Izzy. He came in studio, told these great stories. Just one of the, the, the most fun guests and just a total charismatic guy, Alan St. Elisa. And last year, it was brought to my attention. I was sent a YouTube video of Alan. It was this YouTube channel of people documenting people that are uh, homeless, the homeless. And so it was Alan in a McDonald's parking lot in L.A. And, you know, he was, you know, dressed like a rock and roller, but he seemed like a little off. You know, he just didn't seem right. And, you know, that worried me. I put it out there on social media. I mean, 
that at that point when I saw it, the video was already like a year or so old. So you know, what am I to do? Uh, you know, social media—that's one of the good things about it, right? You never know. I put it out there. If you've seen them, just kind of—that's my way of helping. I don't know how else to help. So today, uh, or the other day, I should say, Alan sent me a DM. He sent me a message. I was so worried. He goes, "Hi, Brandon." This is Alan St. Delisa. Uh, he's even reminding me. In 2017, I was a guest on your show, and I just saw a post where you said you were worried about what happened to me. No need to worry anymore. I'm currently living in San Diego with a nice girlfriend. Everything is fine. And he tells me, tells me some private things um, that I he might be okay with me sharing, but I'm not going to do it now if he is on as a guest. But a lot of those things kind of relate to what Beth Hart has gone through what I've gone through being properly diagnosed and medications. And, you know, if he comes on again, well, if you want to talk about it, sure. But, uh, but yeah, he is good now. And the fact that he found the podcast, he DM'd me and he writes, you know, um, thank you for your concern. You are one of the nicest people I've ever met. Take care, Alan. Thank you. But I will put this out there. Uh, he said, I'm sorry if the video made you worry. I asked if they could t- please take it down, but they won't. So if you want to find that YouTube video, it's I did repost it on social media just with the announcement that Alan is okay. If you want to leave a comment asking them to remove that video, I'd appreciate it. I did that as well. Uh, you know, Nobody should make, be making you know money of just a few thousand views of Alan in a bad time of his life. It's just not right. You know, it was one thing if you were trying to help Alan, but he's okay now. So there's no reason for that video to be up. But anyway, uh, a nice way to wrap up Mr. Mailstone. What an unexpected. Oh, you know what? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I can't end there. No, no, no. There's one more Mr. Mailstone. Even though that was a great one because he's okay and has to deal with health and everything. This is just, how do, how can I forget? And I, I need this opportunity to tell you about this. This is something else I posted. So maybe you know a little bit about it. This was another DM. So where Alan was on Facebook, this was on Twitter at the AFD podcast. I get a DM from Joe Porcilli. You don't know that name. You will know that name after Doug Goldstein's book eventually comes out. And just a quick little update on that. I've done a lot on it. Still a long way to go. But I will tell you this. I'm feeling better about it because I'm at a point in editing where things are taking shape. You know, we may talk about a topic at one point and then revisit another. And I guess got to combine stories and just, and it's, it's happening. I'm just like, okay, we talked about this here. Let me go back. Okay. You know what? Let me save this for that. And Oh, this is going to be a good chapter. So it's, it's taken shape. It's just a lot more needs to be done. So it's, it's happening. But, but speaking of the book, this is what's it's tell me what you think about this. This was crazy. Like this is, this could be as, I don't know, shocking as a, as a, as a message, as DM as Alan was, uh, Joe sends me this message on, on, on Twitter and there's a picture first and it's a picture of just a bunch of dudes and somebody I recognize, I see what looks like Earl Gabinon, Axel's old bodyguard. And right in the middle, our favorite redhead, Axel Rose. This picture is, it looks like it's from the late eighties, maybe early nineties. And Joe writes, this message is for Doug. Not sure if you remember my brother Louie and me from New York. Just wanted to drop a line and say hi. 
And sometimes, and I've encouraged this because of the book, if you want to get a message to Doug and you can't reach him on Facebook or something, ask me and I'll, I'll, I'll get it to Doug. So I did that immediately. Doug was like, oh, my God. And I asked. I was at this point of editing. Are these the brothers that we're going to talk about in one of those fan chapters? Yes. Those are those brothers. And thankfully, uh, Joe kind of rejiggered his memory, Doug's memory. Doug was a little uh, forgetful, which will I'll do my best for the book, obviously. So no fault of leaving. I forget stuff. Uh, you know, Doug forgets stuff. So, Doug, we were writing about these two Bronx brothers, Doug and Vinny. And he just remembered, he's like, oh, D Duff would go over to their house for this nice Italian meal. And this is going to be in the book. So I'm telling Joe this, who has no idea that I'm writing a book. He just reached out on a whim and he did correct me. Thanks. So we're going to you know, definitely have him in the book for correcting it. So Louie and Joey are the brothers from Brooklyn that used to hang out with Guns N' Roses back in the day before they really made it big. Vinny was a cousin who was there, but Lou and uh, Louie and, and Joe were always were there for years before Guns N' Roses made it big. You know, apparently they have a ton of memorabilia and autographs, especially from Axel, the hundreds of hundreds. Plenty of pictures with the band, too, because I shared that picture he sent me, and nobody ever saw it before. So this is just, this is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so he thinks the picture was taken uh, around 89, he believes. So he thinks uh, it was Earl's first year, Earl Gabinon's first year. So I just think it's absolutely just incredible that this person messaged me, not knowing I'm writing a book about Doug, and at the time where I'm editing his portion of the story. Just wow. I mean, what's what's creepier or crazier or just more awesome? I can't, how many adjectives can I throw out there? You know, showing both sides of it. They get that DM, and then they get Alan's. Because I was thinking about him recently. I was like, shit, man. I guess I hope, I, I don't want it to come back. You know, it's a, a sad story, and it's not. It's a happy ending. You know. I know how that sounds out of context, but it was—it seems like a happy ending for Alan St. Delisa, and it's just absolutely—it's amazing. And uh, so, yeah, that's where I'll end, Mister Mailstone. How can I forget that? Two big ones right there. So that does it for this episode of Appetite for Distortion. Next episode, most likely, will be the return of Mark LaBelle of Dirty Honey. First time he was on, it was just for ten minutes. It was with uh, Wolfgang Van Halen. Good time, fun time, but we're gonna get. Mark by himself for a little bit longer, and we're going to talk about, because he's calling from the road, I'm pretty sure he knows how to use Zoom, so there's going to be no issues there, and uh, I get to talk hockey with Mark of the Bell. I need to do that as well. I miss, I would, <laughs> don't you love that when I get sidetracked with uh, with other things, like when I would be talking to, you know, um, Alan Niven, you know, ex-Guns N' Roses manager, all these great stories that we can start talking about hockey. Don't you love that? But, as Beth Hart proved today, you got to show a bond, and that's how you get the best out of an interview, right? So look forward to Mark LaBelle. Um, what else? What else is to come? I don't know. Best way to keep in contact with the show but in between interviews, in between episodes, social media. Send DMs, just like Alan St. Delisa, just like uh, Joe from Brooklyn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Reading your YouTube comments, please follow and subscribe on there. Uh, so when are you going to see the next episode? In the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy, you'll see it, I don't know, as soon as the word. No! Fuck it! No! Yeah!
to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.